All right, so we're in First Peter. So turn in your Bibles to First Peter, continuing to move through this last section of this book. And, and I think it's, it's, some of you have asked, I think it's great. It's very interesting that in all this book about suffering, these believers who are going through suffering, and because of their faith, and it has to end with a call to be humble, a warning against pride, and a telling of them, Resist the devil. Uh, that Let that be just an ominous warning to you as well. If people who are suffering because of their faith, God can tell them at the end, hey, don't be prideful and resist the devil. Be careful lest your pride uh, creep up and, and cause the same things to happen. And how many times have we, have we felt that? Things are going great. We let our guard down. Uh, and that's when, that's when something happens. So we'll continue. Last week, we continued to look at this question that began in verse six of chapter five of, uh, the need for humility in the church. And really, it went back to the, to the very end of chapter, uh, five, verse five of chapter five. Uh, that, that humility is something the church needs to have, that, that it's the key to, to struggling rightly, uh, uh, whether they're, uh, dealing with suffering or with submission, you, you deal with those in humility. So you've got to have humility toward one another. That was chapter five, verse five. Uh, you've got to submit to your shepherds. Uh, and then you've got to also clothe yourselves with humility, all of us to one another. Uh, so humility is something that we should have toward one another at all times. We should be humble toward one another. But also, starting in verse 6, we need to be humble toward God. We need to make sure that our hearts are humble toward the Lord, that, that uh, recognizing that it is God who has brought suffering, who has brought the suffering in our lives. As first, chapter 4, verse 19 says, If anyone suffers according to the will of God, uh, let them entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So if suffering comes your way, it's not chaos. It's not random. Uh, so the question is, will you humble yourself if God brings suffering into your life? Or is that the point you're going to say, okay, God, I was following you and then things got tough. So I'm not going to follow you anymore. Uh, or is it a, a question of, of submission? God, you've arranged the world this way. I know you said the home needs to be like this. The church needs to be like this. I need to be a type of citizen like this or whatever. But God, I just want to, I want to be about me. And God says, that's not how I, that's not how I arrange the world. You go, but that's how I want to arrange the world. God has to say, hey, humble yourselves under the world that, that I have, uh, made. Uh, so let's look at this section again. Let's read verses, uh, six through 11 again. Uh, and then we'll, we'll jump down, uh, into verse seven is what we're going to look at today. Let's stand in the honor of reading God's word. Cause again, we have already been thrice blessed, right? Uh, because God has spoken to us through his word. We've heard God's word already today. We've read it. Uh, we've actually heard it three times, uh, and now we're going to read it again. So God is speaking to us, and we want to recognize that we're, uh, we're recognizing that, that we are humbling ourselves before God, even in standing in recognition of his word. So beginning in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself 
restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, to you be dominion forever and ever, and you will reign forever. And Father, I pray that today we are already humbling ourselves as your subjects and saying, God, what we need in our lives is for you to be God and not for us to be God. And so, Father, that we might humble ourselves uh, to your word, humble ourselves to what you call us, how you call us to live, uh, and that you might get all the glory through Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so let's, uh, let's look here again uh, about humbling ourselves toward God. Just a quick refresh of what we've seen so far uh, in verse 6 and humbling ourselves toward God. Uh, to humble yourselves toward God, you've got to believe uh, what God has said and done. Uh, you've got to recognize the might of God's hand, both positively and negatively, right? Good thing when you're obeying that God's hand is mighty. Bad thing if you're disobeying that God's hand is mighty. And then you've got to let God exalt you, not try and exalt yourself. So at the right time, he might exalt you. And then starting in verse 7, we saw that you need to, you need to be trusting God. We need to be trusting God. And the way we trust God, he says in verse 7, is that we cast all our anxieties on him. And it says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So someone asked, if we trust God and we've got to give all our anxieties to him. And we, we said, look, as a Christian, there's no reason. A Christian can't just be an anxious person who's always worried about everything and just gives into that and just fretful that you can trust God. And then someone asked, and it was a good question. Does that mean that the Christian life is perfect? If you can trust God, does that mean we're just trusting God? Like, hey, everything's going to be perfect for you. You've got no reason to worry about anything. Because is this like, like a, a Baptist version of like the health and wealth gospel? Uh, like, just trust God. Everything's going to be fine. Or does it mean that, that Christians will never worry? Does that mean it's wrong for me to ever, you know, even worry? Like, uh, you know, say something bad is about dog is running up to me with its teeth bared. Uh, am I supposed to be like, I am not, you know, like some sort of monkish uh, Christian response, like peace be upon you, dog child. Uh, is that is that what it means? Is that what it means? But that that we're we're not to be anxious. And of course, the answer to those things is no, it doesn't mean that your life is going to be perfect. I mean, look at the book that we're reading. All right, look at 1 Peter. What's the whole book been about? <laughs> suffering in the Christian life. These believers are suffering and he's telling them how to go through it. And that's the point. Not that Christians aren't anxious or that Christians never have anything to be anxious about, but rather that Christians don't hold on to those anxieties. They don't let those anxieties take root and grow into doubting God in their hearts. When they become anxious, they cast those anxieties away from them and onto the one who can really take care of them. They cast their anxieties on the Lord. Not that, not that Christians are, are, are able to not be anxious because everything is perfect. Look, that's, that, if that was the standard for Christians, hey, don't be anxious when everything's perfect. Uh, anyone can do that. That's an elementary level of calm. Like, how do you know he's a Christian? Well, he's always calm and everything's great. Like, as Jesus would say, even the Gentiles do such things. Uh, even they can be calm when things are perfect. 
What separates the Christian, what makes the Christian stand out in the world is that Christians are able to cast their anxieties on God in the midst of the sufferings. In the midst of the anxieties coming, they're able to still trust God. Not to trust God when things are perfect, but the Christian has such faith that when things are not perfect in their eyes, they continue to trust the one that they know is perfect. And so they cast their anxieties on him. And that's the point. Not that, not that Christians never have to worry about bad things happening. But that Christians don't lose hope. And they continue to trust even in the midst of the bad thing. Even in the midst of the hard thing. Christians, as the Bible says, has a, have a peace that surpasses all understanding. And that's, that's what's going to stand out to the world. No one has trouble understanding someone who's at peace when everything is great. No one's going to be shocked that Christians have a peace when everything's going wonderfully. But to have a peace in the midst of difficulty, to have a God so powerful that you can trust him in the midst of anxious times, that's what it looks like to throw your anxieties on Christ. That's what it looks like to cast your anxieties on the Lord. Not to give him the fears you've made up, right? It's not casting your anxieties on the Lord. Everything is great in your life, but you made up all these things you're worried about that you don't really even need to worry about. They're, they're all these, you know, you got on WebMD and found out that everything you've got leads to cancer. It's not that, but what? It's, it's to give him the very real possibilities of what could go bad in your life. Even the very real things that are going bad in your life. The things that aren't perfect and give those to him and say, even in this, I trust you. That's what it means to cast your anxieties on him. And so if you're trusting God, no, it doesn't mean your life's going to be perfect. And no, it doesn't mean you're never going to worry. It means the minute you start worrying and you're tempted to start trusting yourself, you take that anxiety caused by your situation and you cast it on the Lord. Because you know he can take care of it because he's got a mighty hand. But also because of the next promise here. Why do we cast our anxieties on him? Because he cares for you that's our second promise here do you remember the 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 first promise that was in verse six the promise that he will exalt you right so that at the proper time he may exalt you god is going to exalt you now we see another promise god cares for you now that first promise the promise of glory is a future promise right that's gonna happen so you don't try and glorify yourself you trust that god will glorify you But this promise is a present one, that God cares for you. God will exalt you then, but he cares for you now. So part of trusting God is believing that God cares about you. Now, look, some of the doubt in that makes sense, right? Who are we? Like, who am I that God would think of me? There's some good humility in that, right? Until God says, you're my child, and I do think about you. It becomes pride if God says, I care for you. And then you go, no, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. You start to believe yourself rather than him. So the believer recognizes God cares for me. And that's a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith, not to say it, but to believe it, to see it in the midst of the hard things, to see God's care in the midst. So to see that even your suffering 
is a part of him caring. Your suffering doesn't mean he doesn't care. You're going through suffering because he cares. Even in the midst of this anxious time, the way you're going, he has brought this into your life. You're continuing to entrust your soul to him. You know that he still cares for you. You don't doubt that. When times are difficult. Or with the issue of submission, you know that the one he calls you to submit to, husband, shepherd, uh, government, masters, whatever, the things we looked at in, in chapters 3 and 4, that, 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 that those things aren't there because he doesn't care. Those things are there because he does. Real trust of God, that, that real faith that God cares for you is seen when you can know that even the affliction that you go through is good for you. For example, look at Psalm 119. We would, have, we would have gotten here in a couple weeks anyway, Zach, right? Uh, but Psalm 119, verse 67, look at what it says. This is what Psalmist says. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. What did the affliction cause the psalmist to do? He says, before, before I was afflicted, before things got tough, I was like, everywhere. And have we not all felt this? When things are great, what do we do? We don't pray. We don't read our Bibles. We don't go to church. Things get difficult. What do we start doing? We start praying. I better start reading my Bible. I better start going to church. Why? And so the affliction oftentimes causes us to see what we refuse to see through our rose-colored, not glasses, but sometimes rose-colored reality. Everything seems perfect. And so we forget about the Lord, which is the exact same thing that God says is the reason you want to pray not to be rich. Because if you're rich, you're going to think, I don't need God. Uh, And he says, look, sometimes affliction, affliction will cause us to keep God's word. It will be a reminder that my life is but a vapor and will soon be forfeit and I will face this God. He says the same thing in verse 71 of Psalm 119. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Talk about a level of trust. It, it, to be able to say to God, it is good for me that I was afflicted. That's the exact opposite of what many of us have to deal with. Many of us have to deal with when affliction comes, we start to doubt God's goodness. We start to doubt God's care. God, where are you? God, I thought you loved me. God, why is this going on? And he says, at the end of it, he was able to say, good, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The one good thing about affliction is it forces you to realize your helplessness. It forces you to realize truth. It's like, it's one of the most gracious things in this world is a funeral. Because it forces all of us to recognize death comes for us all. Affliction has come and we've got to look at it and everyone has to recognize that what God says in his word is true. And so then that forces us to go and, and, and seek God, to learn his word, to know. And when affliction comes, one of the best things that can happen out of it is it drives us back to the word of God. I mean, this is, this is, this is Hosea, right? What we saw in the book of Hosea. God using affliction to drive his people back to him. So the psalmist can say, look, affliction is for my good. The, the, the problem is not that God doesn't care. 
When we start to struggle and we hold on to anxieties, it's not, the problem isn't that God doesn't care. The problem is that we sometimes are too prideful to believe him when he says he does. Because God says, I care for you, and yet we'll go through the affliction and say, no, you don't. Don't, But don't you, which is so funny. Don't you hate it when people do that to you? Don't you hate it when you tell people something that is true and you're like, oh, I did not mean it or this is not. And they're like, "Mm -mm, prove it to me. That is so maddening, right? And they at least have a reason to doubt us because we're all liars and broken and sinful. It might be the case that we're lying to them right now. But God has never done anything but good to us. And yet he says, I care for you. And we go, prove it. No, you don't. Or even more, it's not, it's not even that, which sounds mournful, which might be what happens on the outside. But really in our hearts, it is a pridefulness retching up against God and saying, no, you don't. And God comes and says, and you say, well, that, that's not what's going on. If that's not what's going on, then cast your anxieties on him. Give him your anxieties. Because he says he cares for you. The only reason you would hold on to them is if you are stronger and mightier and better than he. Otherwise, why hold on to them? What fool would hold on to anxious things when they've got someone right over there that says he will take them, he will take care of us, he, he can handle them. You know you can't. And yet you hold on to them. The only reason you would do that is if you believed you were better than he. You see the pride that would well up in that. Humility and and trust in God are actually something tied together a lot in Scripture. For example, Psalm chapter 40, verse 16 and 17. Look at what it says. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh, my God. When when our hearts are filled with praise, we can trust God. When our hearts are filled because everything's going great and we're rejoicing in the Lord, we're glad, we're praising God for our salvation continually. Great is the Lord. But what else does he say? Even, even when our situation is not great, when we are poor and needy, we can know that God, that the Lord takes thought of us. That our job in prayer, in scripture reading, in worship, our job is not to convince God to start thinking about us. That's what the pagans did. Remember, you think back to the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. Well, what did they do? They cut themselves. They leaped around. They chant. They tried to do anything to get their God's attention. Our job in worship is not, we're not trying to get God's attention. We're not trying to convince God, hey, hey, we love you too. Look at us. You know, we're not, this isn't a battle among siblings to get the Lord's, you know, focus here. God, God, okay, I'm going to pray again and maybe now he'll look at me. Our job is not to convince God to think of us. Our job, our battle 
is to convince ourselves that he's telling the truth when he says he never stops thinking about us. And that's normally our battle, is to believe I don't have to get God's attention right now. God always cares for me. He knows everything that's going on in my life. He, I can, he has brought this into my life. If anyone suffers according to the will of God, this is God's will for my life. He's here. He's, he's in even this. Do I believe him? Do I trust him? That's what's going to be the root of either the victory or the defeat in terms of anxiety. Who do you believe more? You don't have to convince God to start paying attention to you. You've got to convince yourself that he never stopped paying attention to you. He never stopped caring for you. And if you believe that, he says, cast your anxieties on me because I care for you. Not I will care for you or I forgot and I'm, I'm back to caring. But because I care for you. Do, you. do you believe that? Do you believe God when he says he cares? If you do, then you will give him your anxieties. You'll trust him, and you'll trust him more than you trust yourself. There's a, there's, a, there's a twofold reason that we'd hang on to our anxieties. Either we think God can't handle them, so we doubt his mighty hand, like it said in verse 6. Or we think God won't take them. We think he doesn't care. There'd be no reason, the only reason you would hang on to your anxieties and not give them to the Lord is if you think he can't do anything with it, and you need to read verse five or verse six where it says that he has a that you need to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, or you think you're going to cast him at him and it's going to hit him in the back and come right back at you, and you're going to be disappointed. Like the only thing worse than going through an anxious time is going through it and, and reaching out to someone and them not reaching back. He says it's never going to happen. So if you if you find yourself anxious and you're holding on to your worries. You're worried about what your life's going to be. You're worried about what your life is. And you, I didn't think it was going to be this. And I thought it was going to be better. And all these things that you might be going through, whether physical or mental or emotional, all these things that you might be battling. And in this group of, of 50-ish people, there's probably 200-ish different things that you, might be, that you might be battling with. Different anxieties that you might have. Some of you, three or four different things. Some of you, the same thing. Some of you, totally different things. The question is, who do you trust in your life? Do you trust the Lord when he says, cast your anxieties on me because I care for you? Let's look at a good example from scripture of what it looks like to trust the Lord in the midst of anxious times. You're going through difficulty like they are in 1 Peter, going through suffering. Even if it's suffering because of your faith like it is in 1 Peter. Let's look at a good example. This one's from Psalm 55. It's a, it's a Psalm of David. We don't know the exact situation of David's life, uh, but it wasn't a good one, okay? Let's look at what David says and, and see what we can learn from that. To see that this idea of trusting God because he cares for you is not a new thing. Look at verse 4. My heart is in anguish within me. Why is his heart in anguish? He says, the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I could fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. 
i.e., pastor translation, things are bad. Okay? Things are, we don't know the situation. We know things are bad. David's heart is anguished. He is, he's been betrayed by a close friend and he wishes he could just fly away. He wish, I wish I could just get away from all of it and get some rest. Have you ever felt that about a difficulty you're going through? I'm going through this difficulty. What would I like to do? What am I praying for? Lord, give me wings. Right? Give me wings to just get as far away from it so that I can what? So I can get a little rest, a little peace. He wishes that he could just hole up. But look at where he's even willing to hole up. He's willing to hole up where? In the wilderness. He says, God, you can give me a house in the wilderness. I don't care. I'm not asking for like prime real estate in Jerusalem here. My God, I would, I would hole up. I would, I would lodge in the wilderness to get away from this. To escape, as he says, this raging in his life, this raging wind and tempest. His life is in turmoil. He fears for death. He's been betrayed. He just wants to get away from it. He wants some rest. Everything is piling on and piling on and piling on. And he is, as Peter said in chapter 2, he is bearing under all this stuff. And he just wants to run. He just wants to get away. But look at what it says down in verse 16. He's going to say, after expressing his feelings and his anxieties, we're going to see that he did not go, so I ran. So I hid in the desert. He's going to say he doesn't need to do that. He doesn't need to run. Well, at least he doesn't need to run away. What he needs to do is he needs to run to God. And so what does he do? He prays. He prays. Verse 16. But I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He is in, he who is enthroned from of old say law because they do not change and do not fear God. What does he know? He says, I don't need to run. I, I, I want to run away. I want to hold up in the wilderness. I want to get away from this tempest. But what I really need is to call out to God. And so instead of him taking his anxieties and going, what should I do? What should I do? And just running away with him, trying to get away from the situation. Instead, he gives him. This is a problem for many of us. Many of us, when we deal with anxieties, we try to handle them, but we try to handle them our way. We run away from them in all sorts of ways. We'll disown people. We'll, 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 we'll respond to evil with evil. We will respond to anxieties either emotionally, physically, medicinally, however we can to get away from it. We read those verses about David saying, I want to fly away like a dove. And we're like, yes, do that. And he says, that's not what I need to do. I need to run, but I don't need to run away. I need to run to the Lord. So he prays, and he, look, at the, look at the confidence he has. He says, evening and morning I, and noon, it's like, this isn't, he's not praying, like this isn't a, this isn't a, hey Lord, it's me again, and I know I'm about to die, but everything's great, because you're great, and we're all great. What does he say? Evening and morning and noon, I utter my complaint, and I moan. I moan. And what? He hears my voice. He redeems my soul. He continues to trust God. He knows God will save him. But, but the thing is, maybe this is just true for David, because David's David, right? He's like Messiah with a lowercase m. 
He's the Lord's anointed. And so this, of course, God's going to take care of David, but I'm not David. You know what? David knows you're not David. David knows you're not David. Because look at what he says in verse 22. He says, this isn't just a truth for him. This is a truth he wants all of us to know. Because after examining all of the situation, he says in verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. So think about this. This is David writing this psalm in the midst of anguish, saying God will take care of him. It hasn't happened yet, right? He said God will take care of him. But yet even in the heart of that trouble, not only is David able to trust God himself, he writes verse 22, he's so trusting of God, he calls on others to trust God too. Oh, how I wish we were able to handle anxiety like that. We're not only in our anxious times, are we trusting the Lord? In our anxious times, we're saying, look at me trusting the Lord. You should do this too. You know, and moaning and sweating and about to die. Um, like, like, a, like a furtive and frantic hallelujah, right? Like trust God and people are going, why are you trusting God? That life is horrible. Uh, you know, like the, how are they trusting God? And you can say, faith like a mustard seed, man. Faith. God tells me I can trust him. I want to so trust the Lord that when anxious times come, I'm not just getting through it myself. I'm pointing others to trust God as well. That's where we need to be with our anxiety. That's where we need to be with our worries. To be able to not only cast our anxieties on the Lord ourselves, but to tell others, look, cast your burden on the Lord and he'll sustain you. He'll never permit the righteous to be moved. That's the humility we need. That's the, to so trust God's care that in the middle of our struggle, we can encourage others to trust as well. That's where we need to get. That's, that's where the righteous get to, right? Not just, I want to get through this, but I want to point others to the Lord. That's humbling yourself and that's recognizing the purpose of all of this isn't even just about you getting through. Isn't just about you, but about getting people to see the Lord for who he is. And David recognized that. David recognized his suffering wasn't even just about him. His suffering was about God and his glory. And if we'll remember that, it will be so much easier to cast our anxieties on the Lord, to not hold on to them as if we trust ourselves more than we trust him. And if we do that, to trust him, to fix our problems the way only he can. So let's talk real quick about a couple points of meditation, what we can think about from this passage, because that's the end of verse 7, and we're about to get into the devil stuff. And I thought, well, that would be a weird transition in the middle of the sermon. Uh, So what sort of things can we remember from verses 6 and 7 about humbling ourselves before God? So if you're thinking about how can I make sure that I'm humble before the Lord? How can I take these, these verses here, verse 6 and verse 7, and think about God in them? Well, let's, let's look at what uh, Peter's been dealing with. The question of submission, the question of suffering. Let's start, let's start with submission. Do you humbly submit? So am I humble toward God? How do I know? What does that look like, Chris? Do you humbly submit to the world that God has made? 
I mean, looking back at First Peter, if you'll remember what he said in chapter 2 and on into chapter 3 uh, of those various groups that he mentioned, government, masters, uh, uh, wives to husbands, and now in, in chapter uh, 5 uh, to, your, to, to your shepherds. Is there a group or person that the Holy Spirit right now is letting you know you don't submit to this? Are you someone who humbles yourself to the way that God has made the world? Are you on? Let's think of the things that he talked about. The government. Are you honoring your government that God has placed over you? Remember, Peter wrote this. When he says honor the emperor, he's talking about the emperor who's probably going to kill him. He's talking about an emperor that persecuted Christians. That killed them, certainly, and probably killed Peter. And yet the Lord moves him to write, honor the emperor. I don't care. I don't care if you're a Trump fan or not. I really don't. And, and the truth is, it should have been the same way under Obama. Like, you've got to recognize, we have to submit to government. Not because we're submitting to that person, but because we're trusting that the Lord has created the world this way. It's not a question of not my president. It's a question of not my God. So are you submitting to the government? If not, if you, are you submitting to those who are over you? Whether the emperor is supreme or the governor is under them, as Peter says. Are you submitting to your husband? Are you submitting to your husband even if he doesn't obey the word? Or have you come up with an excuse to take the reins in your home? Look, it, it, ladies, I understand. It is hard to read scripture and it says... Submit to your husbands, even if they don't obey the word. I know that that's hard. Why? Because all the way back in Genesis 3, it says this is going to be hard. And Genesis 3 tells you it's going to be hard. And look, I know your husbands, right? And your husbands know your husbands. But you know what? It's not going to help your husband to be godly for you to steal the reins of the home and make it a place of battle rather than a place of trust and submission. That's not going to help the home. You think it's going to help the home because look, he's not a very godly person yet. And so I'm going to be the one that leads the family. You know what that's going to create? A husband that's not a very godly husband ever. Are you submitting to your shepherds? As imperfect as we may be. Or have you again managed to find a way to say, you know, I don't, I don't have to listen to these folks. The masters and slaves is a little bit harder to figure out. But the, the question is, all such actions are Pride. Is it, I think this is so funny because we, we rightly mock evolutionists because they try and rewrite the story of creation, right? They dare to be like, I know we weren't there, but I've studied bones and I'm pretty sure I know how the world was made now. I've looked at layers of dirt and I think I know how things were created. And it's, it is, that's what they do and it's stupid. Um, and it's funny because we will, we'll be like, how can you, God tells us how he made the world. And we're like, no, I don't think so because uh, of this. But in the midst of that, that, what's so funny is we'll mock that. But then we'll try through our lack of submission to be our own personal Darwinists. Because what we'll do is we'll start reshaping God's design for marriage. Or God's design for the family, or God's design for the church, or God's design for the home, to what we think it should be. 
It's the exact same thing. How prideful for someone to have God say, this is how I made it. And they didn't make it. They've been around maybe 50 years. And they're like, no, that's not what happened. This is what happened. But yet, how also prideful for God to create not just the world, but how the world works and us to look at it and say, that's not how I want it to work. I want it to work like this. We become our own evolutionists, our own Darwinists. when we take God's world and shape it for ourselves. What's funny is God says that the root of this pride, a root of not submitting to the world that God has made, the root of that is actually how you feel about God not how you feel about the world. This is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, 12 through 14. The Luke one is interesting because Luke puts this in here and the other uh, Matthew and Mark don't put this part of the story in, but I think, it's, I think it's fruitful. Look at Luke chapter 19, verses 12 through 14. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. So what you see here is they use the person put over them as an excuse when it was really about not wanting their master to be over them. Like these, these people, this person went to receive his kingdom and they sent a delegation after that man saying, hey, we don't, want the, we don't want this guy over us. Because they didn't like their master because his citizens, verse 14, hated him. That hated him is not talking, is not talking about the servant. That's talking about the master. And saying we don't want him being over us. At the heart of not submitting to God, is not about how you feel about the person you're called to submit to, but how you feel about the Lord. So we've got to make sure that if God sets up the world a certain way, that we submit to it. Otherwise, you're dealing with pride. You need to kill it. How about submitting to suffering? Do you submit to suffering in your life? It, it is pride to think that you could write a better story for you than God could. So if you're struggling, if you're going through suffering in your life, and you're like, my life would be better if it was this instead of what I've got. That's pride. To say, you know what? If, if I held the pen to my life story, I think I could write it a little better. No, you couldn't. And I think if God were here and was writing in the notebook of your life, I dare say you probably wouldn't say that out loud. Right? So don't think it. If affliction is coming your way, trust. If things in your life are not what you thought they would be or what not, not what you thought would be best for you, then trust that you're a dummy and God's not. There, at least you're not God. That he understands things maybe a little better than you do. And you've got to recognize that. That when it comes to who's dumb and how your life is arranged, it's probably not God that doesn't get it. Right? So do you see God as faithful? Are you always trusting him? So so submitting to these things, submitting to suffering, submitting to to the, the various things that God's called you to submit to. I mean, those are all parts of trusting the Lord, of humbling yourself before God. So if, if you look at your life and you don't see those things, then you need to, you need to repent. Say, God, I've been prideful because when suffering comes, God, I don't trust you. And sometimes it's even before suffering comes, God. When I think about suffering that might come, I don't trust you. God, I'm not even, I'm not even to the level where I shouldn't be, <laughs> right? You're not even at the level that you shouldn't be at. Like you got, you got to go up a step to get to where even that would be wrong. 
I think, God, I'm, I'm so prideful and, and I so don't trust you and I don't believe you that I get worried about things before those things even happen. Say, God, I worry about the suffering before the suffering even comes. So God, forgive me for that. It's a question of submission. Say, God, I know I like to submit to you in the things that I like to submit to you about. So if there's something that I see in the Bible and I go, yeah, we should do that, then I'm all about that. But when I see something in the Bible that forces me to have to change my life, it's like, all of a sudden I'm not as submissive as I'd like to be or think that I am or want others to be. But, But repentance shouldn't frighten us. And I say repent, one, because repentance is a good thing. Not repenting is the bad thing. Repentance is not the bad thing. If you're repenting, that's a good sign, right? That's a sign of a heart that's been changed by the gospel. The sin is not a good thing, but the repentance is. In fact, Scripture is going to tell us this. Uh, Look at Isaiah chapter 57, verse 12. Or sorry, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. We looked at this last week, right? Who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. We shouldn't fear repentance because repentance is a part of humility. God says he is with the contrite and the lowly. And that word contrite, that word contrite just means crushed. And sometimes what God needs to do is he needs to crush us. And the good thing is sometimes we are crushed. Our our situation crushes us. And we need to know that God is there. That God is with the crushed. Sometimes it's we who need to be crushed. We are the situation that needs to be crushed. It's not our affliction that's the problem. It's us and how we view it and what we think about God. And sometimes we need God to crush us. We need the pride in our hearts and we need the conviction of the Lord to smash us. And you need to pray. You need to pray that God would crush you if there's anything in you that needs to be crushed. To say, God, I know you're with the contrite. So God, if I need to be brought low, bring me low. And if there's any pride in my heart, crush it. If I've built up idols, smash them to bits. God crushes the proud. The, the problem, God crushes it. He either does it now in this life through conviction of sin, or God crushes the proud forever in hell, where the proud see the outcome of their life and idolatrous pride. But God crushes the proud. So you better say, God, crush me now. This, this reminds me of the passage in Luke chapter 20, verse 18. Where it says, everyone talking about Christ, it says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When we come to Christ as Christians, the old us is broken. It is shattered and and we're made new. We fall down on that stone and we are crushed. But that doesn't mean if we don't come, we avoid crushing, right? For those who don't fall on Christ, Christ falls on them. Christ ends up crushing them. So what we need to do is pray that we might fall down and be crushed before the mighty hand of God that we saw in verse 6 ends up crushing us. 
If you're crushed or if you need to be crushed, pride is a problem. So pray right now that God would kill pride in you. Pray that you would be crushed today. Pray if there's any pride that God would crush it. And what if, if you, like even as you heard that, maybe you're just processing it. But if you heard the, the danger of God's crushing of the proud and the hope found when he crushes us to bring us life. If you didn't pray just right there, God, crush any pride in me. If you didn't mouth it in your heart, if you didn't cry it out to God in your, in your being, that might show you just how much of a problem pride is. Because you can look at the problem of pride and think, that's not me. And as Spurgeon says, no one struggles with pride more rather than the person who foolishly, knows he, foolishly thinks he doesn't have any. So what is the key to killing pride then? If we're going to kill pride, and this is where we'll end with the pride section. Next week, we'll look at the devil. That's exciting, right? What's the key to killing pride? Look at Christ. Christian, look at Christ. As Peter says, trace the life of Christ. His humility is given to us as an example, Peter tells us. It's there for our example. We just saw uh, just a couple weeks ago, what did Christ say in the foot washing? I'm doing this as an example. If I can do this for you, you can do this for each other. And over and over again, we're told, you want to be humble? Be humble. What? Like Christ. Like Christ was humble. So look at a passage like Philippians chapter 2 that we saw a couple weeks ago. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You want to be able to be humble enough to be obedient to God no matter the situation? He says, look at Christ who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the more you look at Christ, the more humble you will be. Or how about Romans 15, 2 and 3? Let each of us please, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. You want to be humble? Think about what Christ did for you. Think about how the reproaches that you in your life threw on him and yet he bears them. It's funny, instead of casting our anxieties on him, we start out casting our reproaches on him. And yet he bears those. If he bears your reproaches, I dare say he will bear your anxieties. And if you are here as a Christian saying, Christ has borne my sin, hallelujah, he took it to the cross, he saved me, how can we then doubt that he will bear our anxieties? If he will bear your hatred, he will certainly bear your trust. To doubt that is to doubt so much about God and about Christ. Let us be people who are humble toward one another, seeking the good of others above our own good, serving one another, clothing ourselves with humility. And let us be a people who are humble toward God, who recognize that this is His world and that we're not our own, that He structured this world in a certain way to humble ourselves under His mighty hand. Let us be a humble people 
let us be like Christ. Just another line in our Tracing of Christ project, this one labeled humility. Let's pray. As we go ahead and bow our heads, just take a moment and, I mean, it'd be foolish of us to see all these verses on pride and the danger of it for Christians even, and to think pride's not a problem for me. So look at your life. And even if you don't see pride, ask God, God, search my heart and and try me. See if there's anything in me that that you need to deal with. And and God in his spirit, he will do that. You're his child. He's going to expose your sin. You'll see it. And then repent of it and, and be right with the Lord. But kill pride. Don't let it sit there. If you see pride, be it through anxiety or a lack of humility, whatever it is, don't, don't just let that be just who you are. That's the stuff that kills you. Humble yourself before God. Ask God to humble you. Ask him to crush you. Say, God, crush me because you are with the crushed. You are with the lowly. You are with the contrite, the broken. And so, God, I pray that I would fall upon the rock that is Christ and be crushed and made new by you. And so, God, if there's anything in my life that I'm holding on to, God, I I lay it down before you. I smash it upon all that is Christ. I might be made more and more like him. Let us be a people that are humble toward one another humble toward our God. Father, I pray that you would help us today to glorify you, God, and to to worship you, not just because we're here, but God, to truly worship you and coming and saying, God, you have my life. My life is yours. I am a living sacrifice to you, as Romans 12, 1 says. This is is given to you. And you come and you say, "If, if you are mine, then trust me. Cast your anxieties on me because I care for you. And God, I pray that we would believe you in that. I pray that when anxiety comes up either in our heads or in our lives, God, that we would fling them on you, knowing that you care, knowing that you will catch them and bear them and that you will be our refuge and our strength, the things that we could never be. So, Father, may we not be fools the next time that that suffering comes our way. Fools who think they can bear their own burdens. May we run to you. And find you able and willing for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.